is the first race of the year. I'm really concerned about how much tension these guys are feeling. People are obviously capable of handling the highest of highs. Michael Walter leads the Daytona 500. And the lowest of lows. But I don't know. I don't know how many people have um, have had to experience them within seconds of each other. We've lost Dale Earnhardt. Hello and welcome to the Matt's Movie Reviews Podcast. I'm your host, Matthew Perkovich, and this is episode number 260. Releasing on digital platforms on November 5 is Blink of an Eye, an excellent documentary that chronicles the career of two-time Daytona winner Michael Waltrip and his friendship with the late, great Dale Earnhardt, and how that tragic day at 2001's Daytona 500 changed the auto racing industry forever. Joining me now on the Matt's Movie Reviews podcast is the director of Blink of an Eye, Paul Talbley. Paul, I thank you very much for your time today. Thank you. Well, that's a lot of podcasts you've done, huh? Guess you've spoken to a lot of people. Yes, sir. I, I've done, I think I did three only a couple of days ago. So sometimes I do two, three a day, sometimes five a week. So I, I do. I, it's, I love doing it. I love talking to filmmakers like yourself. So it's a pleasure for me. Thank you. Thank you. What can I ask? What can, what can I tell you? Well, the first thing I was just wondering is like, you've covered and documented all kinds of motorsports for four years now. Um, you've actually did some work with NASCAR, like I think over 20 years ago, I think it was like a series of NASCAR uh, videos. How did you first become involved with them? And what was your experience like during that time? Because that would have been what, the late 1990s? Exactly, exactly. Yeah, it was kind of funny. I was living in New York, and a producer friend of mine said, I've got this thing about doing these NASCAR videos. And I was your typical New Yorker who was very divorced from Southern culture and from the world of NASCAR. And I, people still joke about this. I went to my first race, and I said, do they always turn left or do they ever go the other way? Hmm. And everybody in NASCAR chuckles because, of course, they only turn left. Um, so it was kind of, you know, um, it, was, it was just sort of like I was an alien in a foreign world, which was kind of good in a way, only in that I, I came to it fresh. I had no preconceptions. I'm an open-minded producer. If there's stories, if there's drama, if the stakes are high, there's something interesting happening. So um, I came to it in those days, and it, w- it was really helpful when 20-some-odd years later this project came about because I had both knowledge, but I was also removed from it. So... I could speak to the people, hey, I know what your world is, I have this credibility, I worked with so-and-so, there was a gentleman named Benny Parsons, and he was a former champion, and when we started doing these videos 20-some-odd years ago, he was, he, he was a very easygoing, gregarious guy who was a former racing champion, NASCAR champion, and you know, people said, oh, it'll be really easy working with Benny, he's a really, you know, super, he's kind of like a fun, almost a clown-type character in the way he analyzed races. And suddenly when he went to meet me, he got very taciturn and said, look, Paul, I came out of the hills of, of North Carolina. I would have been poor and broke, and my life would have been miserable if it wasn't for the sport of NASCAR. So if you're going to do this, you have to be sincere and honest. And he was sort of my guide getting into the sport back in those days. And that's when I realized, you know, the, yeah, they're going in circles. They're going 200 miles an hour. But you know what? It's a deadly serious sport. It's a risky sport. And these guys are legitimately competing, and they have a lot at stake, and they should be respected. And that's how I approached the sport back then, and that's how I did it this time. 
So you have that connection with the NASCAR community from look, looking at your documentary and just different films as well. It really seems like that's a really kind of close-knit community as well. Um, when it comes to approaching Michael um, for this documentary, did you know of him beforehand? Did you know people that knew him? How did that kind of come about? It's kind of a funny story. I do a lot of work for Monster Energy Drink and, you know, marketing videos and some documentaries. So I'm close to that company. And the story there was there was a guy named Mitch Covington who was an executive at Monster. And he had a national sales meeting where they bring in five or 600 people, you know, grizzled beer salesman type guys. And he didn't know who he was going to get to be the, you know, the inspirational speaker. But he had he heard of Michael Waltrip. He knew he had lost many, many races and then finally won one. So he thought, oh, that's a good story for salesmen. He called up Michael made a deal with him, had him come. night before, Michael goes, I've never done a speech before. I have no idea what to do. I don't know how to do this. But they, it was too late. They had to go. And uh, Michael told this story. And it, it was on video, but very crude, you know, one of those little cameras in the back of the room kind of deals. Mm -hmm. And he had, a, he had 500 of these kind of grizzled men in tears. And Mitch and I know each other, and he called me up and said, I just found the most amazing story you've ever heard. And uh, he called me up, and then we had to meet Michael. And he was kind of nervous at first. You know, this is the thing about Michael, as you can tell from the movie, he's very emotional. This is still very raw to him. Yeah. This was his best friend. This was the person who believed in him when nobody else in the world did. And it was taken away from him in a, in a really emotional way. And I don't think he's ever gotten over it. So he wanted to make sure, kind of like back when I met Benny Parsons 20-some-odd years ago, that I wasn't some elite filmmaker guy who was going to sneer down my nose at who these racers were, um, that I was there to tell their honest story. So eventually he you know, saw what I had done. Having worked with Benny and told him that story, he was like, well, you know, I'll, let's give it a go. How much did his autobiography, I mean, he's, he has an autobiography called In the Blink of an Eye, released back in 2011. How much was that was influential in the, the framing of the movie that you made? Very little, to be honest, in the sense that, you know, I did read it, but that story is told strictly from his point of view. Yep. You know, if you read it, it's I did this, I did that, I thought this, I did that. And it's completely a valid docu document. I am no means in any way denigrating it. <clears throat> Excuse me. But I've certainly found as a filmmaker, you can't just rely on the subject to, be, to, to tell the full story. And, and it's only, nobody can talk about themselves in a purely abstract or objective or even a critical way. Um, so we, that's why in a documentary, you know, we, we brought in all the other voices, all the other witnesses, all the other participants in order to really tell the story. So the thing about this story is the structure is very clear what's going to happen, and the, and the ending, which is not what people expect. Um, but structurally, the, the, the bones of the story are there, and I've often said in filmmaking, if you think of a film, this is maybe a crude analogy, but like a human being, it's a body. Well, the, your body only works when you have a good structure in it, or a building, and think of it as an architecture. The foundation and the, the beams and all that stuff has to be rock solid. If you build your story on a weak structure, and something that doesn't really... Um, hold up over a 90-minute or 100-minute period, um, it will be boring, or it'll be, it, won't, it won't work right, or it'll feel weird, and that's because the story structure is not there. I believe very much in classical three-act storytelling. Michael is such an interesting man. You spoke just before about how, just how emotional he can be. He's a, he's a person who really does wear his heart on his sleeve. He's also a man of faith as well. 
But then you have this other kind of side of him where he raced for over 30 years in one of the most dangerous sports in the world. And he had a career filled with rivalries. He had this monumental losing streak. It feels like 496 or something. It's like this phenomenal number before he got that win. Yep. What do you think it was that really kind of drove him, so to speak, to not only want to race but to continue on despite all the challenges that he had? Because talking about a sports person facing obstacles, I mean, I, I can't imagine what it would be like to like not finish, not crossing the finish line in some sort of uh, peak position for that long and not want to continue. Well, what Michael has done that both serves him and is a disservice to him is he's a little bit of a smart-ass clown kind of a guy. Mm-hmm. He kind of pretends to be easygoing. So I think he dealt with a lot of it by kind of like, I ain't going to think about it. I'm going to pretend not to think about it. Um, and so a lot of people didn't take him that seriously. A lot of people criticized him for that. There's a line in the movie where um, this, this guy named Ty Norris, who's one of the heavy, you know, very smart guys in NASCAR, says... You know, Dale Earnhardt would go to the races and go, oh, when we go to Delaware, we got to worry about the track here. we got to worry about the grip and the this and the that. And Michael's comment was, where's the best crab house in, Ma- in Maryland? Um, but underneath that veneer, and his wife talks about it in the movie, but that became his persona. Now, in racing, you need a sponsor in order to go racing. Money equals speed. And he wasn't the best racer. He knew he wasn't the, the greatest of all time. <clears throat> but what could he bring to make sure he got that ride, that he kept the money flowing. Well, he had personality. He was willing to have fun. He is a witty guy. He is a funny guy. So he found that he could do all this stuff to keep the sponsors happy, even when he wasn't winning, but also, I think, let him off the hook a little bit. Like, oh, okay, I didn't win, but you know, I'm still getting my rides, and, and I'll get my victories. And I, I don't think he was driven like Dale Earnhardt to be the greatest of all time. He just wanted to be there. And again, at that level, that's like saying I want to be, you know, you know, in the national rugby, whatever your the premier sport. I'm not sure if you're into surfing, but I want to, you know, want to be at the highest level. It's still, but underneath that was a very competitive guy. He was obviously inspired by his brother, and that made it seem very real. Well, my brother did it, so I can do it. It didn't seem like the way a little kid in Nashville might have, or Owensboro, Kentucky, a little town. You know, how do you dream of going to NASCAR? It's a pretty big dream. So it was sort of a paradox. On one hand, he was very serious underneath it, uh, and um, you could tell they never spoke too much about it, but I think that what happened during those 462 losses in a row, um, it, it strained his marriage and strained his relationships. I believe that a great sports league has to have great characters in it, and I think NASCAR is one of the best, because not only because of the, the skill and the talents of the individuals involved, but because of the characters. So... Your film really shows a lot of them. You have Michael, the kind of smart-ass clown. You have Dale Earnhardt, the really kind of serious, kind of um, competitive-driven guy. Then you have someone like a Richard Petty. Um, and he kind of comes across as kind of like an old-school kind of cowboy kind of guy as well. I mean, yep. meeting all these different people and all these characters, don't you think that NASCAR just kind of just exudes it's just such a personality that other sports leagues just doesn't have just because of these characters? Well, I think, I don't want to be overly critical of NASCAR today, but the sport has changed since those days. I will say one of the wonderful things has been uh, the reception by the NASCAR community. What's happened is in those days when Richard Petty used to go to races, and he's another story entirely, but even in Michael's day, you would go and you needed to win to get money. Like the prize money was really important. Yeah, you had sponsors. In Richard's early days, he would literally, the old, old days of NASCAR, he would drive the race car to the track, and he told me there were times when he didn't have enough money to get home if he didn't finish well. 
So um, it bred, it, it came from these moonshining roots of individuals and rough and tumble and um, guys who weren't super schooled, and they would go out there and win. Now, what's happened now, and why people in NASCAR loved our movie so much, it's become more corporate. It's just the way it is. You know, the cars are, uh, all have a giant sponsor on it. And so it's, but, and then NASCAR years ago tried to sort of like make the thing feel kind of NFL and monolithic. Uh, to their credit, they finally said, no, let's let these boys at it now. Let's let them race. Let's let the personalities come out. They went to the sponsor community and said, you know, your sponsor might get in a fight. Your driver might get in a fight on pit road if he feels he was done bad or done wrong out on the racetrack, and we're not going to penalize him. It's just part of racing. So NASCAR has addressed it and sort of loosened up and said, boys, go out there. But, yeah, it's an individual sport, and... Um, and, you know, when you have an individual sport with guys who are super competitive, um, you end up with a lot of characters because it takes a lot of character of some kind to go 200 miles an hour three inches away from a guy. Very true. Um, the friendship between Michael and Dale Earnhardt was very much like kind of like a mentor-apprentice uh, friendship, but there was also a, a closeness there as well. I found that very interesting how Dale Earnhardt Jr. kind of was kind of... Uh, talked about how he was just kind of surprised how the, the whole thing kind of progressed. He didn't really see Michael as a, a kind of guy that his dad will hang out with. Um, what do you think it was that Dale saw in, saw in Michael that, that wanted to take him under his wing and guide him to victory the way that he did? Well, it's a really good question. It's a little bit of a mystery. I think Dale, Dale Arnott was a, very, a fascinating character, and this movie allowed us to get to a little bit of Dale's character without it being a Dale Earnhardt movie. You know, yeah. you, you kind of meet Dale through Michael. And I think that helps a little bit. Dale, and someone says it in the movie, but I knew Dale a little bit back in the days when I was doing interviews. And one of the reasons there's so little footage of Dale Earnhardt apart from the sort of formal structure is Dale was one of these guys who was very conscious of his presence on the racetrack and in the pits. He knew he had an intimidating personality, and he was a self-aware person. So they say that when Dale wanted to talk to you, if you were a fellow driver, he would summon you to his trailer. He wouldn't go walking to find you. He would send someone. You'd have to come to see him. He was the guy. The you know the the, the guy who ruled. You know, wanted to be seen as the toughest, best driver in NASCAR, and he would let you know in direct and subtle ways. So I think that kind of my guess is now. Now I'm speculating. But, you know, it's hard to be the king, hard to be the top guy all the time. And then you find this guy who's kind of the opposite. And Dale's dealing with the pressure. He's winning championship after championship. And here comes a guy who's out there on the racetrack who has a different approach. Who is a little bit, you know, okay, I won, I lost, happy-go-lucky. Dale understands underneath there he's a racer. But it was like, you know, opposites attract or... Dale could learn, wait a second, this guy doesn't go to the track and he's not super stressed and he's not super secretive and he's not walking around with a mean scowl on his face to make everybody know how you know, to be scared of him. So when he got away from the track, yeah, I think he found someone who balanced him. And then I think the flip side of that is, what did Michael get out of it besides, obviously, a friend? Because they were friends for years before Dale put him in a car. Hmm. Well, Michael, and this is now my two-bit Freudian analysis, um, I think every man needs a father, a strong father figure. Yes. Now, Michael loved his father. There's no doubt he talks about him. I did a lot of stuff. But by the same token, imagine if your father helps your brother get his career started. But when it's your turn, 
Now, it's 16 years later. That's the difference between Daryl, Michael's older brother, and Michael's age, which is a huge amount. I mean, picture that when you're 15 years old, you know, your brother's 30, right? I mean, you're not relating to him at all when you're younger, and he was gone and off racing. So they're not close at all. Many, many people would always joke say to, to say to Daryl, is, is that your younger son? Is that your son? Because they were so far apart. Um, so Daryl gets all this help, and if you've ever been involved in, in raising an athlete, my son, by the way, is a professional soccer player, so I kind of know what it's like to, to, as a dad. You drive every single weekend. It becomes your life. It's the focus of everything you do in many respects because that's what it takes to compete at a high level. And so that's what happened with, with Michael's older brother, Daryl. His dad took him around track after track. It didn't have any money. Very little had a you know blue collar job in a, in a bottling plant, and gave this money to Daryl and got him started. Michael comes along, and goes, "Okay, Dad, it's my turn." And every kid wants to be treated the same as their brothers and sisters. And the dad said, "Hey, I'm too old. I, I can't do this now." And Daryl said, "You're not going to make it. I can't really help you. Lightning doesn't strike twice." So. His brother didn't help him. Now, then he finds Richard Petty, as you see in the movie, which is a wonderful thing to have Richard in the movie. And Michael gloms on to him. Here's, like a, here's someone who believes in me. Young men need to be believed in. Yeah. And what's, amazing, what's great about Michael is he didn't really have it, but he was like, I'm not giving up anyways. I refuse to give up. You know, that's one of the really defined, even though he doesn't exude this determination, he's not a gritty, you know, jaw-grinding guy, he didn't give up. He found, fought his own way, he found his way, and what's also important is, in his early days, he was a winner. He didn't just say, hey, I want to get a ride, give me some money, and I'm suddenly in, in NASCAR racing. He went through the minor league, so to speak, and won, and won, and won, so he obviously had real talent, um, and so... Then all of a sudden, you know, then Richard, he, Richard pushes him out of the nest and goes, now you're on your own. They were only together for a little over a year, from what I understand, but that helped them again. Someone believed in him, good things happened. Michael got to, to high levels. And then, you know, he's, he's drifting again for all those years, loses 462 races in a row. And finally, he finds this guy who believes in him. And even before he's driving for him, Dale is telling him, hey, you could do it, you're good, you'd win if you were in one of my cars. And then that finally happened. So I think that also kind of explains sort of the trauma for Michael, is that the guy who finally believes in him gets taken away from him in the most, you know, horrible, tragic kind of timing-wise way. And not only that, on, on the same occasion where he finally, after all those races coming, whatever position, he comes first as well, which just makes it even more just tragic is just the juxtaposition between the highs and lows there it's just you, you can't make this stuff up it's it's just uh, incredibly tragic and it's just incredible as well at the same time um and, and of course we are talking here about the tragic death of dale earnhardt and you know despite over the how long over 20 years now uh, since that that incident still very raw for a lot of people you can see it in michael and a lot of other people in your documentary too and um I clearly remembered when it happened. I was watching Sports Center, and the leading story was the death of Dale Earnhardt. As NASCAR president um, at the time, Mike Hilton came out and he gave those immortal words to the press pack, which was, We've lost Dale Earnhardt. And um, I think it's one of those things that no matter what sport you followed, like that was a moment in American history or, or, or the history of sports that really just sticks with people. And um, do, you, do you remember the time, uh, Paul, where, where you were? Um, when this tragedy happened. Yeah, I was at that point not, no longer at NASCAR, but yes, I had the same exact reaction. The reason is, 
I think, and this is now me being uh, pontificating, people at that level, and, and when you look at your heroes, they each they get they become characters in your life, and there's certain people who are just like you know when you think about a real movie, which we can talk about in a little bit because this is going to be made into a feature do- feature film, huh. um, uh, and I'll fill you in on that, but. You know, you, when you watch a war movie, when you watch, say, the Tom Hanks, what's the Steven Spielberg movie, when they go to, you know, they, uh, Saving Private Ryan. Yes, yeah. You know, you know, you know that the brother's not going to die, right? You know, there are, you, you kind of expect certain people in life are going to get killed. And when you watch a horror movie, you know that the screaming girl who does dumb things is going to run into the shack instead of running away. You know, people have roles and we put them in places. There, there's iconic... Um, characters and characterizations. So Dale Earnhardt was not supposed to die. He was the toughest, the meanest, the best, arguably maybe one of the greatest racers in the history of all motorsports. Or I don't think it's arguable. So his death was like, this is not the script of our life. This is not how this is supposed to be. You know, it's just not the way it's, you know, it's just not, and he, he just wasn't supposed to die. It just wasn't in the cards. You know, Michael Jordan is a hero. He's going to win championships. And uh, I'm not sure who in Australia is the right thing. Whether I don't know, if, you know, Mick, uh, you know, uh, Lane, you know, Lane Beachley or these great surfers. I know a little bit about the surfing world. Mm-hmm. You know, it's just they, they're they're living out a script that's unscripted, and um, so that's what made it so shocking to everybody. One of the sort of interesting things, because you, you're absolutely right, but the Southern culture is a little bit of like. You know, you don't overly mourn. You're, they're, they're a little bit of emotionally reserved. It, it, you know, it's just how Southerners are. And, and when Dale, Dale died, the community didn't know how to deal with it. So a lot of people, they mourned, but they also, because racing went right back to, you know, people went right back to the track, and there was controversy about what happened, which is not part of our film, because we just didn't feel that was the story we were telling. Um, and so when we had the screening in Charlotte, that was the first time we had shown the movie publicly. Um... We, we show the movie, and the lights come up, and you can see there's all kinds of strange vibes in the room. And I've done a bunch of screenings. You kind of just feel. And I felt, well, this is a little, you know, I expected, like, you know, roaring cheers. Here's this great movie. And it's your, and a lot of the people who were in the movie, um, some of them had lived it. You know, these were NASCAR people. So I'd expected a more, you know, um, enthusiastic response because I thought we did a pretty good job. But as I looked around, people were hugging and crying. It, later, people said to us, "This is the first time we could openly mourn." Yeah, you know, Dale died, and we just kind of, you know, m- motored on. And we were sad, and we we're not we don't really talk about it. But here, because Michael, not really me as a filmmaker, but Michael made it okay. He talked about how sad it was. So suddenly, all these people, people who worked and lived with Dale, said this was the first time twenty years later we could honestly say, you know, goodbye, Dale. So it was very emotional. It's interesting how you talked about uh, comparisons to, say, Saving Private Ryan. I mean, if I could compare Dale Earnhardt to any type of movie figure, to me, he's John Wayne. Um, he's yeah. just that guy, yeah, that, that sturdy presence, the Duke, the man that you looked at. And one of my favorite John Wayne movies was The Cowboys. Um, and what, of course, what happens in The Cowboys is John Wayne dies in like. John Wayne, that doesn't happen. It never happened in the films before, and I think it happened in the films after that, that he did. I think that was the one in, in his movies. Um, and so 
It's a perfect analogy, by the way. That's the perfect analogy. Now, thank you for telling me that. I'm going to use that one again in the future. Well, to, to push it even further, I mean, the Cowboys was about a, a veteran cowboy who was teaching these young kids how to, you know, become men. And I think in a sort of way that there's that mentor relationship once again there. Um, and it was just, it's just, it's an incredibly tragic story. And you mentioned just before, which really got me by surprise, that you uh, there's going to be feature film possibility now. What's happening there? Well, some years ago, I made a movie called um, The Vow, V-O-W, with a producer named Roger Birnbaum. Yep. Roger is one of the best, most prolific producers in the history of Hollywood. I think they said his grosses total as an executive and as a producer puts him in the top five or top ten of all time. He was co-chairman of MGM, where he made James Bond movies. He made The Sixth Sense. He made Memoirs of a Geisha. He made Liar, Liar, and on and on. Any of your viewers want to look him up, go to IMDb and look at Roger Birnbaum, and you'll see he's truly a, an amazing filmmaker. And we did this movie with Rachel McAdams and Channing Tatum. We really it launched Channing's career to another level. And um, so we made that. It took a long time. It was a hard movie. We've become friends ever since and talked about doing something else. So we have lunch every few months. And um, so we're sitting there in Beverly Hills at a restaurant. And I said, Roger, I got this story. I'm doing this documentary. So I told him the story. And he goes, oh, my God, that's amazing. Because, again, the structure is there. It's an amazing story. And endings are everything in movies, right? You've got to have a big ending. And we have an ending, both a tragic one and a little bit of an uplifting one, as you know. And so I told him we were working on the documentary. So Roger says, well, when can I see it? And I go, well, we're, at that point, we were still in a rough cut. He goes, I really want to, wa- I want to see what you've done. And he has a new business. Roger has formed a new company called The Arts District. And he's partnered with an actor, director, producer named Eli Roth, who you may know. Yes. Uh, Eli was in Inglorious Bastards and uh, made some horror movies and a very bright young man. And they had made, Roger and Eli had made the, the Death Wish movie yep. uh, with... Um, Bruce Willis. You know, with, with Bruce Willis. They had made that one together. And, and, and you know, Roger's in his 70s, and Eli's a young man. And it was maybe a little Earnhardt, um, you know, Waltrip relationship. But, but Roger's not a, a taciturn guy. They're both pretty easy going. And so we had a screening with Michael and, uh, at, at a, in a little screening room. And it was a rough cut. It wasn't done yet. It was long and, you know, all the typical things that you, you have when you have a rough cut. And we did have to, we, we had a lot of things we had to take out of it. And, um... What was interesting was watching Michael crying, Roger Birnbaum crying. Roger was trying to hold back crying. He later laughed. He goes, I'm not, he kept saying, I'm not crying. I'm not going to cry. I'm not. But Eli is bawling and going, we have to make this movie. So the three of them just sort of hit it off and said, this is a great story. They don't come along. And uh, the first meeting we had with one of the, people, one of the studios who wanted to buy it, um, everybody understood right away it was not a racing movie. It's a relationship movie. It's a buddy movie. And uh, I think... We're all looking forward, I certainly am, to seeing the Ford versus Ferrari, because I think there's some elements. It's a very different story, obviously, but we think our story is even a better story only because it's not about racing. You know, the racing is the backdrop to a friendship of two unlikely people. And um, so that's where it's at. We're, we, we are closing the deal with a major, major studio. Everything's lined up for that, so I'm optimistic that'll get done. And, um, you know, then you begin this process, which is very exciting, but also now we've got to find a writer, then we need a script, then we need a budget, you know, so we need talent. Uh, Roger has a lot of relationships in town, so and I, I, and these are not commitments, but I know he's thinking of both Brad Pitt and Bradley Cooper mm-hmm. to play uh, Dale Earnhardt. I think either would be amazing, but, you know, Bradley Cooper kind of looks like him. Yep. And um, 
So we'll see. Again, that's down the road. Everybody says, you know, these actors want to see a script. They've both seen the documentary and both loved it, which for me is kind of exciting. And they said, well, when you get to the next stage, please get back in touch with us. So it won't, we'll be, hopefully I'll be able to do another interview with you, but it won't be for a little while. Well, I'm really looking forward to progress of that film because this is a story that I think just fits the feature film format so well and the documentary one as well. And i just got to say, Paul, congratulations to you um, on your documentary as well. Blink of an Eye releasing November 5 on all digital platforms. Everyone out there has to watch this film, even for NASCAR novices like myself. It's just great filmmaking, great characters as well. And um, I can't wait to see what happens with the feature film adaptation. And until then... Paul, I thank you very much for your time today, and once again, congratulations with the movie. Thank you so much. I'm grateful for your, for your enthusiasms.